If you have your Bibles and want to turn to Psalm 110, or you can look along in your bulletin. And there's a reason I don't sing up here. Did you know that? When I was in college, I used to think that I was a pretty good singer. And uh, I told this story recently in staff meeting that they, they gave an appeal from the front that they needed people to participate in the choir for the college choir. So I thought, well, this must be, this must be for me. <clears throat> so I went and tried out. And I'm one-on-one with a guy who knows music. And the first thing he does is he hits four different notes in four crazy different places on the piano. Bonk, 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 bonk. And says, sing that back to me. And I just looked at him like, you got to be kidding. So he hit four different notes again and said, sing those back to me. I said, I can't do that. And so he began to test my range. And then he had to nicely tell me that I think you would be very frustrated if you were in the choir, which translation means he would be very frustrated. (laughs) And I was greatly humbled. Now, when you think about talent evaluation, we have an NFL draft that's coming up in a month. For those, anybody like pro football? Has anybody watched this stuff? You know, we just had the different pro days. I got all these great, everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. There's a running back coming out of Penn State that's going to be the next Bo Jackson, okay? He's amazing. And there's some other great athletes, but who, how do we really know? How good are we at evaluating talent? But there are certain people that we listen to if you're into this. Like when there's certain guys that know sports and like someone like Chris Cooley, who's a very good talent evaluator, when he gives an evaluation on a player, people are tuning in to listen to see what he has to say because they want to know, well, who the Redskins going to get? Can they finally get out of the cellar, you know, with some players? And my point in this is you listen to the people who know. And so here's where I'm going with this. Who is Jesus Christ? What do you think of Jesus Christ? Well, Who should you listen to to know who is Jesus Christ? Probably a talent evaluator. And who's the greatest talent evaluator to determine who is Jesus Christ? Answer, God the Father about his own son. And there's a particular psalm that is different than all the rest of the psalms. Because it really doesn't land at all. I've been telling you so often how psalms are like rock skippers across the pond. They apply in that culture and then they apply again and then ultimately they apply to Christ. This one's just a flat grenade launched and it lands with Jesus. It doesn't apply to David. It's David speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit as a prophet prophesying about the Messiah and giving us language in heaven that there's what the Father has said about his Son. And he's given him two oracles. And so how you determine in your mind who is Jesus Christ, this should govern. This passage should govern your thinking more than any passage because it's the key to unlocking the whole New Testament because all the writers go back to Psalm 110 as the spine of how to interpret the New Testament. So let's give attention to the word of God. 
the Lord. This is Yahweh says to Adonai. Do you see how the first Lord's in all caps and the second one isn't? These are two different Hebrew words, but it's Yahweh says to Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, or we would say God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chief, chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask for help by your Holy Spirit to be able to understand this text to proclaim and herald the good news of this text and also the solemn and sober warning of this text. Open up all of our hearts, we pray. Reveal our secrets. Reveal our need for Jesus Christ. And may we think about him how you think about him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I said when we began this psalm series, one of the early passages, times, I, we're getting near the end of our psalm series, but we talked early on about BGVs. Does anybody remember what the BGVs are? Big God verses. And I had some people come up to me afterwards, the musicians, and say, that's background vocals. BG, if you look on an album cover and you look in the back, you know, BGVs is, is background vocals. And I hope that that's not what this psalm is to you this morning is just background noise and it's not really important to you. These are big God verses and we've mainly been focusing on psalms of struggle and what do we do in the midst of really hard stuff. And yet in the midst of that, we've been sprinkling in psalms that give us big God verses because sometimes a really robust and big view of God swallows up our problems when we have all that we need in Christ. There are three big messianic psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, and 110. And what sets those puppies apart from the other psalms is that those three psalms have a dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. And we get a glimpse of conversation in the Godhead. I don't have time to go into 2 and 45, but you can look at those and look for that connection, but in Psalm 110 we have it twice, and you have an outline in your bulletin there that, that give us these two oracles, and you have Oracle 1 and then a commentary, and then Oracle 2 and then commentary, but the Oracle 1 is the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and then it's followed by commentary. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. He is given the power. Do you have the scepter? You remember we looked at Esther last week and if, and if you come before the king and, and he reaches out his, if he doesn't reach out the scepter to, to let you speak, that's it, you die. 
The, the king has that kind of power and that power has been given to the son and he's given the commandment to rule in the midst of your enemies. And you remember Jesus after his resurrection, what does he say in Galilee when they come before him? But some doubted and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Nobody else says that. Not Gandhi, not Buddha, not Confucius, not anybody. And if anybody says it to you, you need to get medical help for them, right? But Jesus says it because he rose from the dead. Either his bones are, are in Jerusalem or they're not. You can't say all religions are the same. Either his bones are there or they're not. And so when he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, he's given the church a mission because of who he is as the exalted Christ, that he is at the right hand of God the Father, and he is making his enemies his footstool. And he is now ruling in the midst of his enemies, but his people offer themselves freely in the day of his power. And we have a hard time with, with the idea of a king. I mean, when has America had a king? You gotta go way back and it led to a revolutionary war because we didn't want a king. And we got rid of him as soon as we could, right? So we have a hard time with the concept of a king, even just getting our minds around that as Americans. And we get scared when we hear Trump saying like what happened in Honduras was a good thing and maybe someday it'd be good for America to have a, a president that lasts longer than eight years. Like everybody gets kind of scared when they hear something like that. But a king, a good king, the idea is this. When a king, in the, in, put yourself in the Bible times, when a king became king and he's anointed He's anointed as king and they blow the horns and, and the word is sent out. They didn't have blast emails and Twitters and news feeds and CNN. They would make lots of noises with the horns and they would anoint with oil and, and the message would go out that this is now the king. And it was a grace period. It was your loyalty is now to this king. And you gotta decide where your allegiance is. Are you gonna follow this king? Are you gonna stay with a rebel king or mount up a rebel cause and go against this king or get on board with this king? That's the idea is that Jesus is the king. He's the ruler of the kings of nations, we are told in the beginning of Revelation. And because of his resurrection, the horn has sounded and everybody is to know there's a little grace period. Get on board, lay down all your weapons, lay down your arms, quit rebelling against the king of glory, the king of creation. He has been raised from the dead and we are to go and proclaim his name that he is bringing and ushering in his kingdom. And it takes a little while to bring this kingdom in and we're living with that already not yet tension. And so just as in the Bible times, there was... King David is anointed and yet he's not yet the king because he's waiting for Saul's throne to come down. And then when later when he's king, somebody else announces himself to be king, King Absalom. And then there was a mounted army and then there was a battle, but there's a lot of battles 
that were going on over the, over the issue of who is to be on the throne. Well, God has sworn, and he's not changing his mind, and he's installed his king on the throne, and he laughs at those who would rise up to try to overthrow his son. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. He's the king of glory, and he has ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. And so this psalm is going to be played out in the New Testament. I just want to kind of jump and look at some of these passages to the New Testament. So we looked at one already this morning in Ben's reading in Matthew 22, when Jesus gives the question that leads to the mic drop. And it says that while the Pharisees were gathered together, this is Matthew 22, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord sit, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then we're told nobody could answer him a question and nobody dared to ask him any more questions. Well, first Jesus asked the question. He says, whose son is he? It's an easy question. It's easy peasy. And, the, and I'm sure that, you know, the, the Pharisees, man, they're like, oh, this Jesus, he is just, he doesn't get it. It's the son of David. They're feeling good. They're feeling, man, Jesus gives easy questions. Give us a real question. So Jesus has them in his hand, and they think they have him in their hand. And then Jesus says, well, how is it that David then in the spirit calls him Lord if he's the son of David? Then they ask the second question, and we see that he turns the tables around, and he's saying if the Messiah is David's son, then how can David refer to him? By the power, speaking in the spirit, he refers to him as Lord. This is David's Lord, not David's son. And so Jesus doesn't deny that he is David's son, but he's also saying he's their Lord. How can he be both? And the answer is, the Messiah is David's son in his humanity. But he is David's Lord in his deity. And the Messiah is both God and man. He is the God-man. As a man, he descended from David and is David's son. And he's born in Bethlehem, David's town. But in his deity, when he's born as a human, he doesn't subtract deity. No, it's an addition of humanity not a subtraction of deity. So the incarnation, God in the flesh, is what that word incarnation means, is an addition of humanity to his deity. And he is God and man. And as we say in theology, two distinct natures, one person forever. And so this is a beautiful thing that Jesus is holding up this question and he's holding himself and reminding them, I'm David's son. I have de I'm descended, I'm a descendant from David in his lineage. He's from the line of Joseph. who's from the line of David. And so he's reminding the, us that he's both the son and the Lord. And so we see, first of all, as we think about our Messiah is that he is incarnate. He is a human being. God becomes human. And we need to remember how violent that is. We just take that for granted. 
that Jesus became a cell. We confessed it this morning. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He became the weakest form of life in the universe, the most vulnerable form, a cell. Then he became a baby. It gave him, you know, has hands, but these omnipotent hands become these little tiny fingers. The omnipotent Lord of the universe couldn't change himself. He would soil himself and have to be changed. Does that not sound a little bit odd to you? It's absolutely baffling that it's the greatest stripping that's ever happened, as Tim Keller says. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the beautiful son of God, and yet his beauty is ripped out of him, and he's cast into disfigurement. His wealth is, is ripped out of him, and he's cast into poverty. The love which he had with his father is ripped out of him, and he's cast into loneliness. The joy is ripped out of him, and he's cast into grief. The power is ripped out of him, and he's cast into weakness. And there's some that say, well, I don't like that. That God's a God of love. Why does he need to come and die for me? Yuck. I don't need, a, I don't need that. God is love. And you're going to run into some of those people. And how do you respond to them? Maybe that's your perspective this morning. Well, let me ask you a question. Getting this from Tim Keller. He's a little smarter than me. What did it cost your God to love you? What did it cost your God to love you? And if the answer is nothing, then you don't have the biblical God. For God to love you, he gave his only son who was crushed for you. It cost God everything. It cost him his son. You see, a loving God who's not holy isn't as loving as the biblical God, and a holy God who isn't loving isn't actually as holy as the biblical God. But God's love is heightened, and we see how great he is that he became small. This is just the opposite of what the world does. It's the great turning. Is that God who's great becomes weak. He becomes nothing. Hebrews 10, we see this passage from Psalm 110 being quoted again, and it's Jesus actually beginning with Psalm 40. says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he's quoting Psalm 40. And the Bible says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That Jesus has come to do his will, but he's given a body. And he says, he, and we're sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Because they're just offering lambs. And they have to offer sacrifices for themselves. And this is what the Levitical priesthood is all about. But something existed before the Levitical priesthood. It goes all the way back to this Psalm 110 that God has sworn that there'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek is before Levi and before the Levitical priest. And this gets kind of hard to work through in the book of Hebrews, but what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is that Jesus' office as priest is greater than any Levitical priest because it's, it's a permanent priesthood. It was sworn by an oath and the, the Levitical priesthood was temporary. This priest of righteousness, king of righteousness, 
is what the writer of the psalmist is bringing together in this Psalm 110, is that Jesus is both a king and a priest. And if you know your Old Testament, can you think of any place where there's a king who's also a priest? You have Melchizedek, who's a king of righteousness, is, is what his uh, name means, a king of um, uh, peace. Or he's, he's rules in, in Salem, which is from peace, but he's the king of righteousness. But if you know your Old Testament, the idea is this, they don't go together. Matter of fact, if you remember the one particular king that went into the altar and said, I'm gonna take over, and he's the king, and leprosy breaks out on his forehead, because you don't mix these offices. You don't do that. How dare you try to be king and priest? Nobody does that. Saul tried to do it, and what happened? When he offered the sacrifice, and only Samuel was to offer it, what happened? Oh, no. That was it. You don't do that. But here we're told, wait, there is a permanent position of priest and king that comes together, and it's in Jesus and it's foreshadowed back with Melchizedek, who is before Levi ever existed, and we're told by the psalmist that this is the permanent priesthood that will end the temporary priesthood by one who will offer himself, offer himself as the lamb, no longer needing animal sacrifices, no longer needing all these other sacrifices. He offers himself once and for all, and we're told that Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And when he did so, he sat down at the right hand of God because the priests were always standing because their job was never done. But Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because the work was done. And now he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified that's what the writer of hebrews is saying as he's further come commenting on psalm 110 and so jesus has come to do the will of of god he took a body we're sanctified by that body he differs from the other priest who continually offer these sacrifices he offered himself and the third day he's raised from the dead he ascended into heaven and now he's waiting for the enemies to be made footstool. And so we get this idea again in Revel at the beginning of Revelation, we're told we get this blessing of grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so it's great news that the king has come. Come, get on board, follow this king. He, he came and took on flesh and laid his life down and took the curse for you. And he forgives sins for all who will believe in him. But if you don't take up and follow Christ, 
He's waiting till the, till the enemies are made his footstool for those who don't follow will eventually be crushed because they wouldn't submit to his crushing for them. They wouldn't have it. We're told in Romans 8, again, this idea of the, of the right hand. We have five questions that are asked. Here they are. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also is interceding for us. You see, you have to ask yourself the question, how do you know if God accepted the payment? I mean, we live in a day and age where you know, we make big payments and we use our credit card, you know, and you swipe that thing and now you got a chip. But sometimes you don't know whether this big payment's gonna go through or not. And sometimes that happens with the church credit card because I don't know what the credit card limit is and I don't know who else has used the credit card that month. And sometimes I'm at somewhere and I'm making a big purchase and I'm holding my breath. Well, let's just see if this thing goes through. And you just wait and you're just waiting for the approved thing and, you know, give your signature. Well, how do you know that the payment went through? Really, Jesus died on a cross. How do you know the Father accepted the payment and that it's paid in full? How do you know? Did, did God call down from heaven, I approve, accepted, remove credit card now? That He didn't do that. How do you know? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection. Sam Albury put it like this in his book, Lifted. He says, how do you know God accepted the payment? If we were in any doubt that the, that the cross did, it, did its work, the resurrection is where you need to look. There need be no uncertainty. The payment has gone through. His sacrifice has been received and accepted. He really is our savior. He didn't just come to teach us and live for us, but to die for us and to be raised for us. And so God has raised him up and the apostles keep saying it over and over again in Acts as they give their messages, we are witnesses of these things. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses, we are witnesses, we are witnesses, we are witnesses. He keep, they keep saying it in every message, letting you know that God has accepted it. And so what Romans 8 is getting at is if God has justified us, he's gonna glorify us. It's kind of like if, if, and I'm not this kind of philanthropist, I don't have this kind of money, but let's just say that I bought you a car. Dudley, I buy you a car. This is definitely make-believe, because it, be, it would be a really old car if I was getting you one. No, just kidding. So if I were to buy him a car, a brand new car, what comes with the car is when you buy the car, you get the warranty plan. It's either 60K or 100K or, you know, six years, 60,000 miles. The warranty's included. So if anything happens, as long as you're under warranty, you're good. Well, guess what? what? Because of the resurrection and the payment was approved and God raised him from the dead, the warranty always works. It's guaranteed. He's gonna take you home. He's not losing any. He will raise them up on the last day. He's saying if he's done this and he's shown his heart, will he not now also graciously give us all things? You're not gonna say, oh, sorry, 100K's up. The warranty doesn't work. 
No, if he purchased your sins, he's going to get you to glory. He now lives to represent you. He's not going to leave you as an orphan. He puts his spirit in you, and he intercedes in heaven for you. There's this double connection of the Holy Spirit in you and Jesus from heaven, and they're both praying, and they will accomplish their purpose of conforming you to the image of his son. And so he's above now, and we're in him now, and we will be one. No charge can be brought against you. Jesus silences the enemy. We're justified by him, and he's going to glorify us. And so we're told in Acts 2 that this God raised him up. Of this we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out on you what you're all seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens. David didn't ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So David went down to the grave, but Jesus came up out of the grave, ascended into heaven. He was already Lord and the Son of God, but there's something important that the writers of the Bible are making clear to us that Jesus is now exalted again as the God-man. You see, we're told at the beginning of Romans concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's taken humanity up into heaven and has been exalted And so now Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you kill by hanging him on a tree, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. him. And when they said these things, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You see, here's the problem, and going back to Psalm 110, is you see like there's this king and you've got enemies, and come on, what's, what's the big deal? And the idea is this. As, as Albury puts in his book, Lifted, he says, Western society in many ways doesn't like Jesus unless he's in a crib. And even there, there's debate. But he's like a cell phone and cash. They're not to be flashed about in public. It's fine to believe in him, But you're asking for trouble if you start displaying him everywhere you can see him. Keep it to yourself, stick him in your pocket, and take him out when you get home. But the resurrection doesn't give us that option. He left the grave not to stand in some discreet corner, but to take his throne in heaven, a throne that is universal and everlasting, and God has sworn forever. And so he owns and rules the public square just as he owns every other square in the universe. You can't keep him indoors no matter what your neighbors think. He's God's king, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. He's been exalted to the right hand. He pours out his Holy Spirit now and gives these gifts to repentance and forgiveness of of sins as we go and tell others about the gospel, and God opens up hearts, and, and it says they will come freely in the day of his power. Those that say, yes, I will be subject to the king. I will have this king. Any king that would take on flesh and take my sins and be crushed for my sins and be raised. Any king that would do that for me, I will follow him. 
I will make him my Lord and my king. You see, this isn't something we just hide away and pull out for an hour and a half on, on Sunday morning. You see, sin is relational. We have to come to the reality that when we break God's rules, what we're really saying is, I want to make the rules. You see, sin's very relational. It's against a person. And what the people of God did in the book of Acts is they wanted to, to overthrow God. And, and they wanted to kill Jesus. And we still want to get rid of his rule. And that's why people, if you, if you asked, you know, who is Jesus? And you were to ask a lot of people in, in, in uh, college and ask professors and ask a lot of school teachers and ask a lot of your friends, you're going to get a lot of answers. And you ask your neighbors, you're going to get a lot of answers. Are they good talent evaluators of what really who Jesus is? Have they read the New Testament? Have they wrestled with what God the Father has said about him? Have they wrestled with what the disciples who gave up their lives and were killed for him, have they wrestled with what he said about him? And have they wrestled with what Jesus himself has said about himself? Because there's a lot of people that they don't like Jesus. That's the tension that you're getting in Psalm 110. And we get to Colossians and it says, if, you, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears and you will also appear with him in glory. Wow. So here's where the writers of the New Testament are going with Psalm 110 is that when Jesus is raised to the right hand of God, guess who else is raised to the right hand of God? We are. We are hidden in Christ. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And the idea is this. When you identify with him, and you go public with your faith in baptism, and you, by faith, behold Christ, you get the, you get the whole thing. You get everything. You get his death, and when he died, you died. And you get his burial, and you're buried too. And when you're raised, when he's raised, you're raised. And you're raised to newness of life now. And, when, and then when he's ascended into heaven, we're already placed there, and it says we've already been seated in heavenly realms. And when he returns, it's like a magic trick. Verse four of Colossians three says, when Christ, who is your life? He's your life now. When he, when he appears, you're also gonna appear with him in glory. It's like one of those magic tricks. And Benny just did one of these the other night to me. We were at a youth event, and he was, you know, taking the quarter, and, and, it's, and, and the hand is quicker than the eye. And, you know, but the quarter's staying with Benny. But he makes it look like, well, the quarter was over there, and it's under that cup. But he was able to hide the quarter, but the quarter stayed with him. But you think it's gone, but the problem is my eyes. Well, the problem with us is we think, well, am I really seated in heaven? Am I, am I really dead to sin? Am I really alive with God now? Am I really have the spirit of God in me and he's conforming me to the image? Because I feel like I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm depressed. I'm struggling. Our eyes are being deceived. You're in Christ, hidden in him. The quarter didn't go anywhere. It's still there. It's just you got deceived by what you thought of reality of, of interpreting your circumstances. But you're in him, and so now set your minds on things above because that's where Christ is now seated, and that's where we're gonna be real soon. Hidden with Christ. I enjoyed watching the 
How many of you enjoyed watching the UMBC Retrievers beat UVA? And did you catch what the announcers said at halftime when they went and they were saying, never in my lifetime will we see a 16 seed being number one? And one guy was teasing another guy, yeah, it's gonna happen to you, but not gonna happen to me. It happened, it happened in, in, in 20 more minutes of, of real play. And it wasn't even close. It got crushed. And things just turned like that. Wow. They're saying it would never happen. Greatest, greatest upset in tournament history. That's what's going to happen to us. This is what Albury says in his book about Colossians 3. We are spiritually raised now. He says it happens in two stages. And we will be physically raised at the end of time. So Paul can say to the Colossian Christians, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Our spiritual resurrection has taken place already. He put it in the past tense. Our union with Christ means that we've already experienced something of his resurrection. But we will be physically raised. What he's done spiritually will happen physically. And it can happen like that. And we've had several from our church that are with the Lord now. And they know him. And they love him. And they see his glory. Last verse and then I'll quit. 1 Peter 3.22 says this about Jesus. It says he has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so my question is who's at the top? We're asking, who's Jesus? Well, what do the angels think? I mean, we've got three categories here. Angels, authorities, and powers. I don't even know what the authorities and powers are. Do you? I mean, you've got all these different classes of beings. You know, you've got seraphim and cherubim, and then you've you, authorities and powers. It's like, you know, when you're watching these Narnia movies and you're seeing characters, like, who are? They're kind of weird looking. I'm not really sure what they are, but... And so here you have these angels, authorities, and powers, but who are they submitting to? They are under his power. They get their authority and their power from Jesus. So where do you fit in in relation to angels, authorities, and powers? Do you, are you an inferior, an equal, or superior to them? To just the angels, authorities, and powers. Does anybody think they're superior? Okay. They're all acknowledging they're way inferior to Jesus. So where should you be in relation to Jesus this morning as to who's king? And we wonder why we can't say all religions are the same. Because none of them puts Jesus there. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he said, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. When you got the keys, you got the keys, you got the power. He's got the keys of death and Hades. And he can just unlock the grave and say, come on up. Nobody else does that. Buddha, Gandha, Confucius, any person, nobody. But Jesus is the king of glory and he's done it. And so when Jesus, when the women saw Jesus and when they came to the tomb, 
they, they don't realize that a new world order has being, is being ushered in and that something has died in the night. It's called the whole old world. And the whole new world has begun. And now we're back to the cool of the garden. And God is walking on, in, in the garden again. And there they are. And there's Mary saying, where did, you, where did you put him? Where did you put him? And he says, Mary, Mary. She's seeing the king of glory, the one raised from the dead. She grabs onto his feet and worships him. He's ushering in this new kingdom and he's gonna take away all death, all sin, all struggle, all heartache, all tears, pain, gone. And now we live in this age where we wait for that to happen, but we offer ourselves freely in the day of his power, and that's today. Offer yourselves freely to King Jesus because he's the king of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's none like you. And we pray that our hearts would get bigger so we could take in more glory to give you. That you would compel our lips and our lives to follow you that we would think thoughts that are worthy of you. And that these big God verses would swallow our problems. Come and reign over us, we ask. Help us, Lord, to follow you, for you're worthy. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.